Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So, have you heard from your sister lately? <sighs> My sister. Hey, barkeep, can we have two shots of Cuddy and two tall boys? I didn't tell you about my sister. She had a baby, right? Right. But she did dolphin-assisted childbirth. What's that? You have the baby in the water, and the dolphins deliver it. They're so wise, those dolphins. They're like our teachers, you know? They're the ones that taught us about sushi. They beheld the ancient undersea wars between the beings of Atlantis and the aquatic apes and lemurs. These dolphin-assisted babies are born super intelligent. IQs around 180. A new species, Homo dolphinus. No, the return to an old species. 16,000 years ago, we were one species, but we split. You know who knew about this? Who? Justice Scalia. That's why they took him out. No. His ancestors were from Valcamonica, Italy, where the ancient cave paintings, they show the whole story. He was going to blow the whistle. We are a species of fallen dolphins? But it's within our power to go back to the pre-lapsarian octopus's garden. If people knew, the whole system would collapse. So they killed him. I thought he was just, you know, 79 and in poor health. Eh, it's never as simple as that. So true. Let's get another round while they listen to this radio show about politics, iPhones, and conspiracy theories. And now he gave the FBI 20 guesses to unlock his AOL password, Colin McEnroe. All right, yes, welcome to the show. We will be discussing things related to the introduction you just heard in our final segment where we are uh, going to be discussing kind of the, not the rise of conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories in some ways are a constant in American mental life, but... Uh, there are some differences right now, and uh, you saw them a little bit with uh, the death of Justice Scalia, in which various various foolish things were said about it. Although one thing that's sort of different, and it kind of does connect to our first segment, is that one of the foolish things was said by the Republican frontrunner. He was one of the people who said something about the position of Justice Scalia's pillow. I mean, typically, if you're running for president, you don't you don't suggest based on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, that a justice of the Supreme Court died in a suspicious manner when he didn't. Anyway, uh, that is to come. Uh, but we're, we will be talking about the current political scene, uh, what we see in the aftermath uh, of the Nevada caucus for the Democrats and the Republican primary in South Carolina. Uh, and then uh, in the mid part of the show, we'll talk about something that you've probably heard about. I don't know how easy you have found it to follow this. Uh, but the story about the confrontation between the Department of Justice uh, and Apple. Over the uh, over one of the cell phones that was used uh, by one of the uh, shooters in San Bernardino. Uh, anyway, so all of that is to come. But right now, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the current political scene with Phil Bump. Uh, Philip Bump is a political reporter for The Washington Post, uh, especially their blog, The Fix. So uh, welcome to the show. Of course. And uh, let's begin sort of with the present moment. Now, 
here's here's how I'm feeling, and you can feel free to tell me that you think I'm wrong. But I, even though these weren't massive results o- over the weekend, it's a Nevada caucus, it's a South Carolina primary. Neither one of them has to be earth shaking. But I thought I did de- detect a, a shift in the force, and that was that we're really starting now because there's just enough accumulation to start talking about delegate math as opposed to polling, as opposed to anything else. It's starting to be important who has delegates and who can get delegates and how. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I think particularly with the Republican side in South Carolina, when Donald Trump won the state because it was a modified winner-takes-all state, he ended up getting every single delegate, which was only three delegates shy of all the delegates that were awarded in Iowa and New Hampshire. So that was a significant win for him from the delegate standpoint. Now, granted, he's still far, far from where he needs to be to get the, the 1,200 or so delegates that he needs in order to be the nominee. But you're right that now we start actually seeing how these things are, are adding up toward the nomination. And I think you see it on the Democratic side, too, to the extent that, I mean, Hillary Clinton is better poised to get delegates. First of all, she gets a lot of superdelegates unless they panic and stampede some other way, which they're less likely to do every time she does something like win in Nevada. Uh, and, you know, for Bernie Sanders, he he probably has to put on huge surges in maybe some winner-take-all states like Florida or, or Ohio. Other than that, the proportional math will keep allowing her to pull away. In other words, if they both do reasonably well in in a lot of contested states and and they're proportional, he won't be able to pile up enough delegates to be able to offset what she already has. Yeah, and so in 2008, what we saw was that Barack Obama was very good at working the margins on delegates. And he went to a lot of places where there were a few delegates that he could win overwhelmingly to build up his margin against Hillary Clinton. Um, I think what we saw over the weekend, though, is we saw a different kind of shift on the Democratic side. And that was we saw proof at long last that Hillary Clinton really would be able to rely on non-white voters to get her across the finish line. Iowa and Nevada were both caucuses. They were both states in which among white voters, the two did about equally. But Hillary Clinton went up three to one among black voters, and that made the difference for her. We've got a slew of states coming up in the south where she can do very, very well, because there are large populations of non-white voters. And I think that really was the story of the weekend for the Democratic side, that this long-standing theory that Sanders could do okay in Iowa and do well in New Hampshire, but then hit a roadblock, I think we really saw that that is probably the case. Now, let's go back to the Republican side. Uh, one of your colleagues uh, wrote that um, within the last 24 hours or so, that if anybody else besides Donald Trump had these kinds of numbers, we'd be talking about him or her very uh, almost as a prohibitive favorite, that with these kinds of numbers and these kinds of trends, uh, any kind of even slightly more traditional candidate would really be perceived as somebody with a very clear pathway to victory, but that somehow or other we talk about Trump uh, differently. What's your reaction to that? Well, the person who wrote that's my boss, so obviously I agree. <laughs> so it's brilliant, yeah. No, but you know, um, I, you know, I'm inclined to agree generally, but I think we tend to overlook the extent to which we, in 2012, saw these people repeatedly charging at Mitt Romney and suggested that Mitt Romney might be weaker than he actually was. Right? Mitt Romney ended up being pretty stable, ended up being pretty solid, he ended up winning the nomination pretty easily. But we kept seeing all these charges, and we assumed he was weaker than we than he was. Um, I think part of that is what's happening with Donald Trump, but I think the real thing that's happening with Donald Trump is we also see this huge mass of Republicans who hate Donald Trump. There are a lot of Republicans who are never going to vote for Donald Trump, who do not support Donald Trump. And I think that sitting out there, as well as this still being a relatively fragmented race, 
gives a lot of people pause to say, eh, this guy might not be exactly as far ahead as he looks. So uh, one thing that one clip that was much circulated after Saturday night uh, happened on CNN. Van Jones, a former uh, Obama administration person who's now a commentator on CNN. Um, after the concession speeches, after Jeb Bush had dropped out of the race uh, and after most of the commentators on CNN seemed to be kind of enjoying what they saw uh, as the, as the Trump victory. I mean, there's a way in the which we in the press enjoy the Trump victories, not because we enjoy his victories, but because they keep the race so interesting. And that may have been what was going on. Uh, but here's what Van Jones had to say. I'm going to say what has not been said. It was a complete classless act for to- Donald Trump to come out there and not acknowledge Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush <coughs> went out there. He did an honorable thing. If that was your son or your dad, you would have been proud of Jeb Bush tonight. Uh, uh, Marco Rubio went out there. Mm-hmm. He did the right thing. He said kind things about this man who's given his life to public service. And Donald Trump is a classless clown. And it was, no. it was, it was horrible for him not to do that. And, I, and, and we are now, I think, in a situation where we are beginning to adapt to absurdity. Mm. It is absurd to have uh, someone like him on the national stage who won't even acknowledge. If, if he were your child on a soccer pitch, you would have wanted him to act better toward Jeb Bush tonight. There is something really going wrong in this country, and somebody's got to be willing to speak about it. Now, there's a lot of things going uh, on there, Phil, um, and not all of them have to do with how he acted towards Jeb Bush. But we should say that from the jaded, cynical perspective of political reporters, there's a reason why Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and I assume John Kasich, I didn't see his speech, would go out there and say really, really, really nice things about Jeb Bush. And that's because their money people were, before midnight on Saturday night, calling Jeb Bush fundraisers, calling the people who uh, were are part of the very, very powerful nationwide Jeb Bush financial network uh, and trying to court them over to the side of their particular candidate. Well, not only that, but the voters, right? right. I mean, Marco Rubio's people were very direct to their supporters that night to say, do not cheer, do not be happy, do not celebrate the fact that Jeb Bush is out, because they know they need those Bush voters in order to be able to surpass Donald Trump. Now, I will say to uh, Mr. Jones' point that I feel like it's a, you know, this is a, he's a, he's a, Progressive. He's on the left, right? I think it's sort of uh, it's unfair to label 40 percent of half of the country, those Republicans, as embracing the absurd around Donald Trump. I think that it is more fair to portray that as being the fact that people really like a candidate who comes out and just says what he's thinking. And I think there's an appeal to that. I think there's an appeal to that around Bernie Sanders as well, that people feel as though Bernie Sanders is just shooting from the hip. He's saying what he believes in a way that Hillary Clinton isn't. I've spoken with Donald with people who are considering voting for Donald Trump. I spoke with some people last year at the Iowa State Fair, for example, right when this whole thing was was kicking off, and a lot of people said, "Yes, I think that he says things sometimes that are that are out there, but they liked the fact that he was at least saying things without working off the script, without, you know, without being someone who was who was working off of poll numbers and the extent to which that is true for other candidates or not doesn't really matter. That people like that. And that, that this far along into the political process, there's an appeal to that that Donald Trump has. So let me pick up the, the standard for Van Jones and, and offer a counter argument on his behalf. I mean, particularly when he says we're beginning to adapt 
to absurdity. So heading into the South Carolina primary, uh, uh, Mr. Trump gave a speech in which he repeated uh, a story that has been told about uh, General John Pershing, uh, who, who supposedly executed Muslim prisoners in the Philippines uh, using bullets dipped in pig's blood and that he executed 49 out of 50 and sent the other one home to tell his comrades, that's how we treat you. Um, not only is that story probably not historically true, it's certainly not historically verified, but it's a pretty damn bizarre story to be telling if, if you're I mean this is not this is something that if this were an, any kind of halfway normal political season I, I think people would be reacting in shock to this story except that it just happens all the time yeah I mean I think that that's that there is definitely a, a situation here where we have learned repeatedly that now when Donald Trump says something like that that there's no point in even wondering if it's going to do him as candidacy because it won't right mm-hmm. I mean we've and we've seen literally five examples in the past seven days. Like, we get that. But I do just want to say again that I think the calculus here is less about him saying increasingly weird things, and that's a weird thing to say, right, uh, than it is that people are viewing the way he says everything through a different lens than they view it for other candidates. Now, whether or not that means we're you know headed to a more coarse culture, whether or not that means we're headed to a more coarse politics, you know, I mean, there have certainly been instances in the past in which candidates have said things which have been overlooked by their supporters and condemned by others. Whether or not that's happening, the undercurrent here is that Donald Trump is being successful because he's a different type of politician at a moment that people are looking for different types of politicians. Um, I, I want to ask you about something that you've covered in, in particular, and that is um, this whole question of the birthplace of Ted Cruz and how it affects his um, legitimacy as a candidate for president. In a, in a way, you know, you'd think we would have settled this somehow as a nation. I mean, it's come up in the past, um, and you'd think it would be settled law. But as far as I can tell, it's not. We have this thing in, in the Constitution that, that seems to be open to maybe perhaps multiple interpretations. And, and the question would be, how likely is it to affect the run uh, of Ted Cruz, particularly as Donald Trump continues to bring it up? So it's a great question. And, and obviously the, 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 the legal question hinges on the difference between a natural-born citizen, as identified in the Constitution, and a citizen at birth, as identified in the U.S. legal code. We know what a citizen at birth is. We know Ted Cruz was a citizen at birth. That was Marco Rubio, now that Donald Trump's pointing fingers at him. We don't know necessarily what's meant by natural-born citizen because it hasn't been challenged, and most people assume it's the same as citizen at birth. And I think probably most legal scholars and most courts would agree it's the same as that. Now, the question of this lawsuit's a whole different issue. Donald Trump has threatened to sue Ted Cruz, and it appears, based on case law, that he has standing to do so, that he would be negatively affected by Ted Cruz campaigning as president because he's a candidate running against him. And if Ted Cruz is ineligible to be president, then those are essentially votes that Donald Trump could have done that were wasted. It's unclear that there are a slew of other lawsuits out there. It's unclear that any of those will actually be found to have standing because they aren't candidates in this race. And you can't just sue someone on behalf of a nebulous, giant population because otherwise we'd have all sorts of lawsuits about all sorts of things all the time. <laughs> so I'm not sure that this lawsuit will actually go very far unless Donald Trump were to sue, in which case we might finally get an answer – but the answer would probably be that 
yes, take readers as a citizen. There's actually uh, another thing that could, I think, conceivably happen. At least I've seen it at other levels. I, I don't know how it would work this time. But another person who could conceivably sue would be Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz could sue for a declaratory or clarifying judgment on this. If he, if he thought it was a pretty easy thing to settle, if he thought it was a layup, and if he knew that he was going to be sued by Trump or some other stakeholder who had standing uh, and thought that it could just screw up his, can- his chances, it, it wouldn't be a terrible idea to at least think uh, about seeking a judgment on your own, uh, on behalf of yourself. I, I have, however, seen that backfire at least once, but but sure. it, it's an option anyway. Yeah, I think that's exa- I think the risk of backfire is one thing, but I think the other thing is just keeping the thing in the news, right? Uh, you know, when you look at the polling in Iowa, for example, Ted Cruz started to drop in the polls. Granted, he ended up winning in part because he had a better actual campaign organization. But the drop in the polls began as Donald Trump started focusing on this issue of his activity, right? And so I, I think that for Ted Cruz, he assumes, as do most legal scholars, that this would not actually be a problem if it came up. And so it's not worth it to him to go through this protracted legal process of trying to prove it. I don't think if you walk into a courthouse in Houston one afternoon, you come out two hours later and the guy says you're A-OK to run for president. I, you know, I just think the risks of it far outweigh what Ted Cruz would want to want to actually uh, assume. Mm. You're probably right about that, uh, although it would be one way to get it off the table if you could get it decided sure. fast. Hey, while well, we still have some time here, I know you alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation. Uh, let's just flip back to the Democratic side. We were talking about delegate math. But the other way to talk about this is the way that you were talking about this in terms uh, of race, in terms of white voter- voters as opposed to non-white voters. Um, and, and so this... This is the question. The question has to do with Bernie, whether Bernie Sanders can broaden his appeal so as to be able to compete with Hillary Clinton for some of those kinds of voters. How does that look to you right now? Um, it looks as though Bernie Sanders is not being terribly successful. I would say in order for Sanders to win, he has to do one of two things. He either has to broaden his appeal, particularly to African-American voters, or he needs to do a better job of turning out young voters. Um, I think he's not done a good job of turning out young voters, certainly not as good a job as Barack Obama did in 2008. He's tried simultaneously to appeal to non-white voters, particularly African-American voters, and has just not had success. We continue to see South Carolina, where in 2008, 55% of the the Democratic electorate was African-American. He still trails Hillary Clinton by a huge margin there. It's highly unlikely he'll be able to turn that around by this week. But the real question is, can he turn around over the long term? And the other challenge he's got is he was able to spend a lot of time in Iowa and a lot of time in New Hampshire because those were the first states to vote. Now he has a lot of states that are coming up very quickly. He's going to have a lot less time to campaign in, making it a much more national race, and he really needs to make inroads and isn't so far being able to do so. Uh, Phil Bump, great analysis. Phil Bump, political reporter for the Washington Post blog, The Fix. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. All right. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, When we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to be talking about uh, Apple and phones and the FBI. uh, And, well, no, that about covers it. And we're glad to have back on the show Will Aramis. He has been with us in the past. He's senior technology writer for Slate.com. He's been covering the story of Apple versus the FBI, not only in print, but on Slate's Political Gabfest podcast, which this week actually turned into another Slate podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. But Will wasn't the one who was arguing. It was the rest of the panelists who got very excited about this topic. So we decided we would get excited about it, too. Will, welcome back to our show. 
Thanks for having me. And um, let's uh, maybe you could just sort of set this up for us. This this involves a phone used by one of the participants uh, in the San Bernardino shooting. What does the FBI want to do here? The FBI wants Apple to help it hack into the shooter's phone. Uh, The problem is that that's a bit of a complex request technologically. Now, ever since 2014, and this was in response, I should note, to uh, all the backlash over the Edward Snowden revelations in 2013 about how uh, the NSA and government agencies were uh, obtaining data from big tech companies, including Apple. Starting in 2014 with iOS 8, which was the latest version of its mobile operating system, Apple built in a, a new set of security features that made it so that uh, even Apple could not unlock your phone if you had it passcode protected and you had the data encrypted. Uh, and what that means is that, uh, you know, in the past, law enforcement agencies have often come to Apple for help uh, getting the data off of a suspect's iPhone. Apple has generally complied with those requests. What this means is that Apple no longer has the technical ability to do that. And so what the FBI is now asking Apple to do in this case is to essentially write new software that would that would disable some of those security features and allow the FBI to hack the phone, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to hack. Now, um, I've been reading your coverage closely, and but that doesn't mean that I understand everything that I read. In fact, it's axiomatic that I don't. But the way that I'm understanding it, Will, is that, that there are particularities to this case, as there tend to be, and, and even particularities to the phones in this case, that this phone, although it has iOS 8 as an operating system, is in fact a, an, an iPhone 5C or something like that, and that if it were anything later than that, this conversation just wouldn't be, take, it would, wouldn't be taking place because, in fact, the way Way that Apple has engineered these things, they can legitimately say to the government, nothing we can do. It's a total eclipse of your phone. We, we ourselves cannot do the thing that you're asking us to enable you to do. You know, it's, it's so interesting. This, this case uh, has taken turns uh, over, the, over the days. Uh, it, it sort of it came to the public eye when Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, published a letter to Apple customers on Apple's website in a very high-profile move opposing this court order. Uh, that brought it out into the light. And ever since then, the media and the public and, and lawyers have been trying to get to the bottom of this because, as you mentioned, the, the technicalities involved here are, are not simple. I mean, even, even experts in security uh, and consumer electronics uh, do not agree on exactly uh, what's at stake here. What you mentioned was a, a, an interpretation that came out really soon after Cook's letter, uh, where a technologist analyzed it and said, you know, because this was an iPhone 5C, uh, Apple does have the capability to write this alternate software that would allow the FBI to hack it. But if it were an iPhone 6, let's say, the latest iPhone, then it has this other piece of hardware called a secure enclave that would make it just straight up impossible for Apple to do that. Well, it, it no longer, I, I don't think that that's the case. So I was one of the many who reported on that uh, in my coverage last week. Apple has responded, actually, you know, no, there, there is a way that we could do the same thing for an iPhone 6. So, so maybe it's not the case that it's just the iPhone 5C that this applies to. It's interesting. There are so many little technical details like this where the actual facts are still in question and have not been sorted out or where Apple and the FBI disagree on the facts. So one of the biggest ones and one of the things that the whole fight is, is going to hinge on is this question of whether 
Apple can reasonably provide the FBI with access only to this one person's iPhone and do so in a way that it won't compromise the security of anyone else's iPhone. The, the FBI says Apple can do this. They can write the software in such a way that, that you know, we can only do it on this one phone or even Apple can do it and then just provide us the data. It's not about setting a precedent. It's not about uh, compromising everybody's security. Apple says no. They say, actually, once we create this tool, once we've written this alternate version of the operating system that disables the security features, it's a sort of Pandora's box where, where now other people inevitably are going to get access to this tool and it will compromise the security of everybody else's phones, whether you want it to or not. You know, Will, um, language is often important, and I think it's been kind of interestingly important here. So one of the terms that get tossed around, as you've reported, is backdoor, uh, that, that Apple, uh, in, in a way, sort of trying to discredit uh, the FBI or, or somehow or other suggest that there's something undesirable and nefarious about this particular request, use the term uh, a backdoor to, to the phone, which makes people maybe think about the NSA and earlier security sweeps, um, Say a little bit more about what is backdoor? What is that code for? Yeah, there, there are a lot of disputes over, uh, involving semantics here, and they're not, you know, they're not frivolous. They, they, they often do go to the heart of the matter. Um, so backdoor, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a piece of jargon that, that carries some substantive weight. So Apple says that this would amount to a backdoor. A backdoor is basically a loophole written into the software that allows people to circumvent the security features of that software. Uh, there has been a big national debate about backdoors for the past couple of years, and, and the technologists have, have actually sort of prevailed over the law enforcement community for the most part uh, in convincing uh, the public and, and the Obama administration that uh, demanding that tech companies write backdoors into their security products would be a bad thing. It would open everybody. It would basically just open everybody to hacks, not only allowing the government in, but it would make your uh, your software or your devices more vulnerable to criminal hackers. Uh, authoritarian regimes could use those backdoors to get in and, and, and get your data. So uh, to Apple, if this is a backdoor, that means it's the kind of thing that the Obama administration has said in the past that, that you know, we're not, we're not going to demand backdoors into everybody's products. But the FBI says it's not a backdoor. It's just we just want access to this one device. Uh, you know, it's more like give us a, a special golden key to, this, to just this device, and, you know, we won't use it on anything else. It's, it's not a backdoor. Uh, and so if it's not a backdoor, then, you know, th then it becomes uh, something where Apple is legally compelled to help out the FBI under this, uh, this 18th century law that allows for uh, the, the courts to demand third-party technical assistance in executing a warrant as part of a criminal investigation. So there's another term uh, that gets used, another tech term that uh, gets used, and it's brute force used as a transitive verb. So uh, what's being discussed here is the idea, what, is what the FBI is really asking is the chance to brute force this phone or, or brute force the passcode on this form, phone, which means, as I understand it, hit it with just you know, umpty billion uh, or umpty million anyway combinations until they get it. So uh, 
the way that it, it exists now, supposedly 10 misses and you default out. Well, what they're really asking, and I think, Will, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think at one point it was even suggested that maybe Apple could just hold the phone. They could have the phone <laughs> and while the FBI remotely brute forced it. I don't know what that would exactly accomplish. It seems like some kind of one of those old Timex commercials where they drop the watch off a cliff <laughs> or, you know, those master lock commercials where they shoot uh, a hole in the lock or something. I, I don't I, I don't quite understand what the point of that was. But is that that's what the FBI wants to do, right? They just want to be able to, to, to unlock the passcode. They're not, not asking Apple for the passcode. They're asking for a chance to do it in this particular way. Yeah, you know, there's so much that's complex about this case, but the, the actual security mechanism is surprisingly simple and, and one that, that probably everybody who has an iPhone can relate to. So if you, so you have the option to encrypt the data on your iPhone, which means that if it gets extracted from your phone, people won't be able to read it because it'll be gibberish. Uh, and you also have the option to put a passcode lock on your phone so that people can't use your phone at all unless they type in the passcode first. Now, there is a security feature whereby if you get, try to guess that passcode to open the phone, uh, uh, as you guess, as you go on guessing, it will force delays in between your guesses. So, you know, you might be able to, to get, get it wrong twice, but then it'll force you to wait before you can try again. Ultimately, by the time you get to the 10th try, if you get it wrong, all the, if, again, if the user of the iPhone has this setting enabled, all of the data on that phone will be erased. It'll just be gone uh, and you'll be out of luck. So what the FBI is asking is, you know, we're not going to be able to guess this guy's passcode in 10 tries. And if we do, we're going to lose all this data forever. So you need to disable that feature um, whereby it's 10 guesses and you're out. And they also want Apple to disable a second feature that prevents you um, from being able to uh, – sorry, they also need Apple to disable the timer that, that delays you as you make more guesses because – you're right. What they want to do is called a brute force attack. It's a really simple way of hacking into a device. Basically, you just write a software program that will guess again and again and again and again, thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times, millions of times, however many times it takes to guess that passcode uh, until it gets it. So, but in order to do that, they need Apple to disable the features that are designed to prevent that. Yeah, it's probably just a name from Game of Thrones or something, but I don't want to tell <laughs> the FBI his job. So, um, uh, the other question here, and we're getting a little bit out of your range and into Emily Bazelon's range, but the, the other question is, okay, so the FBI says, look, we can design this program so we only use it on this phone, it only works on this phone. You, Apple, can create the opportunity anyway for us to do this in a very bespoke way, a way that only really addresses our concerns about this phone. But you know, out there in the electronic frontier and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, there are a lot of people going, well, yeah, but once you do that once, you've really started a process here. You've created a precedent. You've created more room for law enforcement to come in in other situations and say, you know what, we, we really need to do this with, a, with another phone. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, and that's, and that's what makes this so fascinating. I mean, there, there are all the technical details that you can get lost in, and they are important to how you understand the case. The reason they're important is because there is a question of competing values involved here. There is a trade-off between the ability for law enforcement to get access to people's data in the course of a, of a criminal investigation, which, uh, you know, is recognized in U.S. law uh, as, as an important value and, you know, something that, that we believe that law enforcement should have the ability to do. There's also the value of uh, people being able to uh, have some security and privacy for their own information. Um, you know, Apple being allowed to create a device that has security features. Uh, and, and so the, all those detailed technical questions, what they're really going to is 
where are we on the spectrum of trade-offs? You know, how much of people's privacy and security are we really trading off here uh, in exchange for the ability to get this information? And that's where the disagreement lies. Nobody, I don't think, you know, nobody who, who isn't being disingenuous would say there isn't a trade-off here. And the question is, like, you know, if this is a backdoor or if it's a skeleton key or, or one of those other terms that Apple has called it, then you're talking about compromising the security of hundreds of millions of iPhone users around the world to aid in this one investigation. If it's not that, if, if there really is a way for Apple to just do it on this one phone and, and the risk, you know, maybe there's a little risk, but the risk is very low that anyone ever, would ever be able to replicate that technique on somebody else's phone, then you're talking about a, a very small hit to, to all those hundreds of millions of iPhone users, privacy and security in exchange for the, the compelling need to bring this important terror investigation to a close. Now, there's another layer to this. I mean, there's so many layers, and this is another one that you've written about very compellingly, Will, uh, and that is that in some ways, you know, Apple probably could have found a framework in which to say, you know what, we're going to do it because it's just this one thing, and it's terrorism, and people died in San Bernardino, and, you know, we're just going to do it, and we're never, never doing it again. Uh, they could have set this thing up that way. What you have suggested is that, in a way, this is also a, a dog whistle to all the digital humanoids of the world, saying, who's your daddy? Where are your daddy. We're not going to, even here, we're not going to let them mess around with the passcode, with the security features on one of these phones. So who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust us or some of the other people who basically want to be your gateway to digital life? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, the Department of Justice on Friday um, wrote a, a letter to the courts, a federal district court in California, um, responding to Apple's refusal to help out the FBI. And in that letter, the DOJ actually went pretty far in accusing Apple of grandstanding, saying this is all a marketing ploy on Apple's part. They know they can provide us this info. They know they've done it before. They've helped us out in investigations before. They're putting up this whole big smokescreen because uh, they want to be able to market their devices as being so secure that even the FBI can get into them. Now, that's, that's a little harsh. I mean, I think, I think Tim Cook uh, is, is from what I know of him, is a fairly idealistic guy. I think he genuinely believes that this would compromise people's security. He's certainly not alone in that. I mean, there are security experts all over the place who agree with Apple that there is no way to let the FBI into this phone without compromising everybody's security. But I think there's a nugget of truth in there, too. I think Apple, you know, uh, I, I think Apple actually does see this as part of a marketing strategy um, that they have, have really emphasized since the Snowden revelations and since the backlash against them and other tech companies in 2013, Apple sees itself as a company that cares more about its users' privacy than some of its top rivals. I mean, Google is famous for the fact that its, its business is based on targeting you with advertisements based on the personal data that it mines, whether it's from your Gmail or from your Android phone. Apple has a very different business model. They sell you the device for a lot of money, and they don't, you know, they don't need to sell you tar sell targeted advertisements to make their money. And so they see an opportunity to distinguish themselves as the company that really does care about your privacy. And now, you know, here's a chance for them to to very publicly go to the mat with the government 
over the right to protect their uh, their customers' privacy. I mean, I think that's something that they imagine will resonate with the public. Yeah, I think, you know, what part of the issue is the public hasn't made up its own mind how it feels about this stuff. I mean, the the, the history of this is brief but also long, and uh, I should have looked this up before I went on the air, but I do remember the big debates over some of the FISA cases that happened under the Bush administration, and, you know, a lot of the phone companies just roll right over pretty easily. I have a dim memory that Qualcomm was one of the few that sort of fought back a little bit, you know, and then, yes, the Snowden stuff that came out about these NSA sweeps that, you know, I mean, I don't know what the polling is or if there is polling, but, you know, it, in a way, Apple's almost damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. There are a lot of people who feel like uh, and, and Republican candidates now beating up on Apple for not cooperating in a case of domestic terrorism. But there are probably just as many people who are going to beat Apple up if they do cooperate. We haven't really made up our mind nationally about this issue. Yeah, so there are people. I, I wrote that story in Slate where I argued that this actually could be in, in, in Apple's interest to have this case highly publicized. Even if you disagree with Apple, even if you think they're doing the wrong thing here, as somebody going out to buy your next phone, mightn't you still go with the company that, that uh, you know, will go this far to protect your data and security? So, so in that sense, I think it could still be a good thing for Apple's business, even if people think they're, you know, don't like the way they're approaching this or think they really should hand over the data or think they're being petulant. Um, so so that's, that's one dimension here. I think, you know, another thing that I think is interesting is that in terms of what each side is doing, I think both sides are doing the right thing. I mean, you know, the government should be going after this data as much as they can to try to get the information to uh, complete this terror investigation. That's their job, right? And then Apple should be trying to protect uh, customers' information. Um, It should be trying to defend its security features. Uh, It shouldn't just be uh, rolling over and saying to the government, yeah, have, have whatever you want. We'll keep mum about it. We won't tell anybody. So, you know, it's, it's easy to see both sides in a negative light here, but I actually think both sides are, are doing their jobs. And the real question then becomes, uh, you know, for the courts to sort out who, who is right legally here. And maybe ultimately it becomes a question for the legislature and for the, for the people of the country to decide, you know, is it okay? Are we okay with companies being able to create devices that are so secure that even the FBI can't get into them in the course of a terror investigation? Or is that not something we want to allow as a society? I think that's the really deep question that underlies this. And I think it would be nice, you know, who knows if this will actually happen. It would be nice if ultimately that was where the debate ended up. and, And, you know, we ended up getting a law or something that would would uh, spare the courts from having to do these interpretations of 18th century laws that were never meant to apply to something as complex as an iPhone. Well, Will Aramis, se- Will Aramis uh, senior technology writer for Slate.com. Your next Pulitzer is uh, you have to find out what kind of cell phones uh, FBI agents and their families are most likely to have. Uh, if they all have <laughs> iPhones, you know, it's... <laughs> Historically, the BlackBerry has been the has been the That's phone true. of choice in the DC uh, Greater DC security community. They're so uh, throwback. But these days, it's getting probably harder and harder to maintain that. Right, could be. All right, thanks for joining us today, sir. Thanks a lot. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something that we've talked about in the past too: the conspiracy mentality in the United States.
I tell you, any phone that destroys all your data after you get the password wrong 10 times is an act of discrimination. Against who? Against us. Against drunks. Doing the password is hard for us. We face terrible discrimination. Tell me about it. You can lose your job. How is that even fair? She was supposed to say something? Me? Who produced the show and all that? Right. Oh, my God, I forgot. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. You, Greg Hill, appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WPPP something. WNPR Colin. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Alexandra Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by George Wendt. Norm. For show pages, articles, and proof that here and now is a conspiracy to present the fluid world of news as it's happening in the middle of the day with timely, in-depth interviews. Isn't that what they say they do? That doesn't make it not a conspiracy. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, a show about adrenaline. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we are going to talk uh, here about conspiracies. Uh, it's something that seems to be part of the, uh, the American appetite, the, uh, the American mindset. Uh, Richard Hofstadter has documented the fact that it's, sort of, it's, it's right there uh, in our DNA. But um, conspiracies rise and conspiracies fall. I think we've seen maybe some unusual things happening here of late. Joining us now is Joseph Yusinski, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami and the co-author with Joseph Parent of American Conspiracy Theories. Welcome to our show and our conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So we've seen, as we will see, um, the rise of some conspiratorial thinking about the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, This is, uh, I think you would say, not all that unusual, although uh, it might be a little bit unusual that at least some of it has come from the front-running candidate of one of the two major political parties. I mean, Donald Trump has been among the people saying, well, that the, the pillow was in an unusual position uh, or something along those lines. I mean, it, it's usually this happens on the fringes. Are the fringes moving closer to the center? Well, you know, talking about our political candidates, I mean, there are some fringe candidates that have oddly become the center of attention, um, you know, Candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump probably would not have done that well in any other time period, but for right now they seem to be, uh, you know, capturing the attention. So Donald Trump, you know, unlike mainstream Republicans, has been talking about conspiracy theories quite a bit. He seemed to suggest that there's something we don't know about the Scalia death. He seemed to suggest that there were things that were being covered up in the San Bernardino shooting and that, you know, once he's president, we'll get to the bottom of it, as if somehow there haven't been hundreds of FBI and agents and local police looking into it and uncovering everything so far. So, you know, because he's not an establishment person, I think that he, he, you know, he talks a lot about this conspiracy stuff, whereas establishment people tend not to. Well, yes. And it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't stop there. I mean, and it goes back a ways. Obviously, uh, one of his first contributions to our political debate, if you can call it a contribution, was to be a birther about President Obama. Again, a conspiracy, a story about concealed uh, evidence, the official record being wrong or modified in some way. He had the story about the thousands and thousands of Muslims celebrating in New Jersey uh, on the day of September 11th. He suggested that the Pope and Mexico are in some somewhat clandestine and packed uh, that when the Pope is speaking, he's speaking for Mexico. Uh, he even circulated, I was mentioning this earlier in the show today, a story about General John Pershing shooting Muslim Filipino pr- prisoners with uh, bullets 
tipped in pig's blood. Um, this is not something that the historical record really accepts as true. But all of these things, I would assume, are part of conspiracy talk in the sense that they, they kind of um, posit a crypto record, a, a record, a parallel record to the official record, um, things that people are, things that are widely circulated but kept out of the official books. And, and this, this is an area in which Donald Trump knows how to swim, knows how to say, well, you might not read it in the history books, but a lot of people know it. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense for him to do that because he's not an establishment person. So it's, you know, most conspiracy theories, they don't accuse, you know, outsiders. They tend, they don't accuse people without political power. They tend to accuse, you know, big, powerful actors, the parties, the government, the president, Congress, the judges, um, big corporations. So they accuse the insiders. And because Donald Trump wants to be an outsider, it makes perfect sense for him to accuse them. It makes perfect sense for him to be the accusee because now he gets to stand on the outside and say, hey, I'm here with all the people pointing my finger at these powerful entities who've been doing bad stuff for so long and screwing everything up. I mean, if you look at the birther theory, I mean, the idea that Obama was born in some other country, mainstream Republicans never picked that up, never picked that up. I mean, I don't think there was anyone in Congress who was really concerned with that. It was just people on the on the fringe, and it depends on whether you think is, that's where Donald Trump's rhetoric is living right, right now. It depends whether you think Sarah Palin is a mainstream Republican. I mean, she did run for vice president, but um, <laughs> so so there's a couple of things that I think happen in, in digital life that allow our natural centuries long propensity for conspiratorial and paranoid thinking to flourish a little bit. One of them is the obvious one: it's just so easy to build sites, to make YouTube videos, you know, so you can have Alex Jones building up this just conspiracy-encrusted media empire out of almost nothing. But, you know, almost anybody who can make a, a, a YouTube video saying that the Newtown shooting here in Connecticut never happened. So that goes on. And, and that's a pretty obvious thing that we can all see. But I'm also wondering about how it affects our mindset. And the Scalia thing uh, strikes me as, as, as maybe operating in a slightly different way, which is that we know that conspiracy theorists and paranoiacs, paranoiacs, they abhor a vacuum. If you don't give them a compelling story, they'll make one up. And that things are moving so fast these days that, you know, in the few hours or maybe 24 hours it took to get the, the details of Justice Scalia's death pinned down, these, these other theories flourished because they move so fast. If you leave people alone for five or six hours, they're going to start making up alternative stories. Kind of, sort of. I mean, some people, I mean, you're giving people a lot of credit when you say, well, because there wasn't, you know, authoritative information about the death, then that let them, that gave them room to make up their own story. And no, I mean, that's only partially true because Supreme Court justices and congressmen and other judges and, you know, people in government die all the time. Mm -hmm. And you don't have this big jump to a conspiracy story all the time. You know, and most most time people die. There's not a lot of information given out. There's there's not always autopsies. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what's what's driving it is is that yeah, people like to make up stories, but in certain circumstances, in that circumstance is fairly unique, that you have the balance of the court essentially going to change hands because oh, because Scalia was a conservative, and the president who will make the appointment is a liberal. Mm -hmm. And you have conservatives freaking out because they're losing a branch of government. 
I mean, just like I said before, conspiracy theories tend to be, you know, um, pointing the finger at the most powerful actors. Mm-hmm. Well, you have an in-power Democratic president who's about to get his way with with the judicial branch, and the people who are losing power are the ones throwing those accusations. In a lot of ways, conspiracy theories are for losers. They're for people who are on the losing end um, of an election or losing end uh, in terms of how much power we have. They're the people at the bottom of the totem pole. And as power changes hands, you will see this. You know, when the Democrats lose an election, they say that Republicans cheated. And when the Republicans uh, win an election, um, the Democrats say they cheated and vice versa. So it's it goes on and on. Um, but the big conspiracy theories of any time are always, you know, the powerful people got away with something. Uh, we're talking to Joseph Yuzinski, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Miami, and the co-author with Joseph Parent of American Conspiracy Theories. So people listening to a conversation like this one are inevitably thinking, oh, those two guys are talking about them. They're not talking about me. They're talking about weirdos on the fringe who think these things. How likely is it that the person thinking that is right? And how likely is it that the person has a blind spot, a conspiracy theory, which he or she does believe in? Everybody believes in at least one. But most people will not consider themselves to be a conspiracy theorist because nobody thinks, hey, I believe this conspiracy theory. They don't believe it because it could be true. They believe it because they think it's true. Mm -hmm. So no one says, oh, I believe in this thing that's either false or questionable. They say this must be true. So if I were to ask people how many conspiracy theories do you believe in, they often say none. Mm -hmm. But then when I name specific things, then, then they cough up a whole bunch that they believe in. Right. I mean, obviously, there are some people who are really out on the fringe and they believe in every conspiracy theory or they believe in ones that are, you know, very difficult for most people to swallow. Like there's one or two percent of the population that think that the country is run by a secret group of lizard people from another dimension. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a big thing, but it's a very small group of people. But that's a belief that's out there. But most people don't buy into that. But they'll buy into things like JFK. Mm-hmm. I mean, polls have shown over time that, you know, in the late 90s, you know, after the JFK uh, movie by Oliver Stone came out, which was a, a really good movie, a few years after that, belief in conspiracy theories about the murder had gone up to, to 80, 90 percent. Mm-hmm. They've subsided a little bit, but there's still a majority of the country that thinks there was a conspiracy. Right. And there's a continuum. We're going to have to stop. This is fascinating. We have to do a whole show about it. But there's a continuum. I mean, a lot of people believe that they don't have the entire government story about what happened on 9-11. That's one thing. It's another thing to believe that the government blew up Building 7 or something like that. That's sort of so there's conspiracy and there's conspiracy even along the the axis of any one topic. But Joseph Yuzinski, thank you so much for talking to us today. And thank you to Betsy Kaplan and to Kion Wolf and Tiana Duquette and Greg Hill. And we'll be back tomorrow with the show about adrenaline, which I'm feeling right now. The fact that there's no evidence is proof enough for me that clearly it's a conspiracy. A vast conspiracy. People talk about conspiracy theories in tinfoil hats, right? Right. Yet no one can ever find tinfoil. It's always aluminum foil at the grocery store. It's part of the plot. You just get me, man. You just get me.